This is G Storytime. We are reading Harold Sanjin by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing company. And we are reading chapter 13, The Preacher. A biographer who attempts to follow Harold Sanjin's movements from about 1925 to 1955 is confronted with no easy task. He kept no diary nor any record of dates, and those that have been supplied are only approximate and spamatic. He appears to leap from continent to continent with ease and rapidity and to have visited hundreds of places. Yet there are certain centers and conferences where he ministered regularly and round which other activities partly revolved. For many consecutive summers during the 1920s and early 30s, he lectured in the United States and in Canada. He loved to think back to the early days at the Seacliff Conferences with Richard Hill. He visited Rhodes Grove and the Stony Brook School, Greenwood Hills in Pennsylvania, and other summer gatherings. He held meetings in Los Angeles and in various centers in the United States. Up in Canada, he gave the series of powerful addresses on the present spiritual value of the Book of Revelation. And also for many years, he wrote the editorials and other articles in Mrs. Finch magazine, The Bible Scholar. He loved the States and even considered taking his family and making his home there as he was at one time offered the headship of a well-known Bible college. He turned down the offer after much thought and prayer, but the land and its people attracted him irresistibly. He felt utterly at home in the warm, friendly, unconventional atmosphere, and of the unfailing kindness of those American friends much could be written, especially during the war years. With their characteristic large-heartedness, they adopted him and his family as their own, and now four years after his death, there is still many a close, unbroken link of prayer and fellowship between Mr. Sanjin's wife and children and his friends in the States. He twice visited New Zealand in 1934 and 1937, though he went once only to Australia in 1937. Later in his life, he had hoped to go again, though his wish was never realized. He enjoyed the boundless hospitality of the Messrs. Robert Laylaw, H.C. Hewitt, John Burroughs, and S.J.S. Burt in New Zealand, and was virtually associated with the camp movement that has so rapidly developed since and became such a source of blessing to the Christian youth of New Zealand. He was the chief speaker at the Browns Bay Summer Camp, and one who remembers him there writes, I was just in the second year of my married life when I first met your father. I had photographs taken of him at one of the early Bible class camps we had at Browns Bay, which has been the forerunner of our extensive camp movement throughout New Zealand. I think that would be the Christmas of the year 1934. There's a photo in which he is a prisoner at a mock trial. I remember that I had to defend him on that occasion for the great offense of having stolen our hearts. I have still another photo of him in his pajamas. It was his habit to rise in the camp about six, stroll around the pier in the early morning sunshine thus attired, reading his testament. I had the opportunity of spending quite a great deal of time in your father's company, and these impressions remain. The long walks he would take with a few of us when we dis- discoursed intimately together, and he gave us out of the rich fount of his own spiritual experience, are unforgettable. The luncheons we arranged in the city tea room when a group of about eight or ten of us would lunch with him, and the conversations would roam over many spiritual topics. We were all in the late 20s or early 30s at the time, and those who lunched with him then are all now prominent in the assembly life and the activities of the city. Apart from those personal memories, 
I would say that the general impressions left by your father's two visits to New Zealand were these, the quality and depth of his knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, the courtesy and chivalry of his gracious manner, and the disciplined life that he led. What impressed me personally was the absence in his speech of any criticism of fellow Christians, the sunny, radiant personality of one who enjoyed his Christian life with a zest, and who inspired others to follow his example and walk in the things of God. I have not the least overdrawn this picture. It was what we all felt about him. He arrived in Australia in time to share the platform with Mr. Alfred Gibbs for the Easter meetings in Melbourne. He also visited Sydney, Adelaide, and Tasmania. He stayed a month in Melbourne, and the pattern of those days is well remembered by his host, Mr. R. H. Clayton. Up soon after six, cold bath, one cup of tea for breakfast, a glance at the paper, work till lunch, then visiting, dinner here or elsewhere, ministry in the evening. It was the generous love of the brethren in Australia, New Zealand, and the States in sending food parcels during the war years that was the largest factor in making it possible for his wife to keep open house for the members of the forces. In the British Isles, he had a certain regular haunts. Between the years 1922 and 1954, he gave 30 addresses at the Bloomsbury Central Church meetings, the greatest number being given during the last 12 months of his life. For eight years, he conducted afternoon Bible readings, for which about 200 people would gather in the lower part of the church. He would draw his chair to the front of the platform and talk, sitting a concession to advancing years. Part of a chapter would be expounded and questions invited. It was, if relevant and important, fully answered, if trivial or irrelevant, gently but firmly set aside. One of his last meetings at Bloomsbury was memorable. It was plain that he was deeply moved towards the close of the address and broke out into burning words of personal testimony. Strangely reminiscent, a Polycarp's Confession. For sixty years, he's been my greatest, dearest friend. He's never let me down, and more in the same strain. Later it transpired that his keen eye had seen in the audience a group of young people brought up in Christian homes, but as of yet he believed without Christ. It was an appeal to them, perhaps his last. At South Park Chapel, Seven Kings, he ministered annually if in England over a period of about 45 years. He was originally drawn there by the founder, Mr. W. H. Knox, for whose practical Christianity he had a profound admiration. Mr. Sanjin often gave 25 to 30 addresses a year to that particular meeting. He ministered the word over a wide area in Scotland during many years, also visiting the large New Year conferences in various centers. He had a special interest in the weeks of Bible readings that were held at the Nether Halls, Largs, at Ayr, and at Aberdeen, and at different times he shared the responsibility of those gatherings with the misers. C.F. Hogg, J.B. Watson, J.M. Shaw, W.W. Faraday, G.C.D. Howley, and George Harpoon. Long after he was unable to travel, his heart yearned for the Largs, conference, and at the beginning of May of 1957, he sent a telegram to those who had gathered at the annual Bible reading. Isaiah 38, verse 19 and 20, Harold Sanjin. These were the words sent by a dying man, and they were read aloud. The living, the living, he shall praise thee, as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known the truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. 
The telegram crossed their greetings to him. A gay picture postcard of Scottish Highlanders in full uniform marching forward to the sound of drums and bagpipes. It arrived at midday on May 11th, just as the gates were opening, and Harold Sanjan was marching joyfully forward into the presence of his king. It was at Seven Kings, first of all, and later at Largs that he gave, on request, an account of his own conversion and early spiritual life, a subject he rarely spoke of. No one felt like going to bed, said one who had attended the meeting at Largs. Lights were supposed to be out at 11 p.m., but little groups sat in the dark in bedrooms and talked until the early hours of the morning. Six of us sat in our bedroom until 1 a.m., wondering what use of our lives were, after what we had just heard. His love for Northern Ireland was a later development, but at the Bible study group in Port Belindry in 1949, the place was packed out and again in Port Rush. He ministered for many years at the summer schools at Plasmanite, Lanfafecken, in North Wales, at the Reading Conference and at the conventions in Boersmouth. He preached on the Kiswick platform in London. Up and down the length and breadth of the country he traveled, and wherever he preached there was a lifting up of men's hearts and a new hunger and thirst after holiness. Many have tried to describe the particular quality of his preaching or the effect that it had on them. One man who lived in Waxham in North, North Wales used to cycle night after night to Liverpool and back after a hard day's work in the coal mines when Mr. Sandham was giving a series of lectures. Another in Scotland went reluctantly to his first lecture on being told that the subject was on the book of Habakkuk, but he heard an address that so opened his eyes that he spent the next year of Bible study absorbed in the minor prophets. Everything he touched took on some fresh hue and rich vein of poetry in his nature, produced the most vivid imagery in his preaching, wrote one who often shared a platform with him. His intonation of voice and interpretation of scripture were peculiarly his own, although it was not merely the spoken word that made such an impression on his listeners. Many preachers knew their Bibles, but Mr. Sanjan knew his Lord. His ministry was unique, wrote one of the leaders of his own home meeting at Malvern. His grasp of scripture was telescopic, microscopic. He took the telescope of his God-inspired knowledge and swept the infinite realm of scriptures and vast expanses and discovered to the saints many a star of truth. He moved amidst the immensities and we sought to hitch our chariots to the stars and our souls were lit up and our minds illuminated. But when he picked up the microscope and called upon us to look through it, we saw a fresh glory in the smallest flowers of the word, daintiest touches, tender tones in exquisite language in which all combined to make this detailed exegesis of scripture more effective. What was the secret of such power and such influence in preaching? The answer is probably a complex one. The hours of concentrated study he put into his preparation has already been enlarged upon, and not only study, but long, patient thought, so that his subject matter was sometimes the mature, ripened outcome of years of deep thinking and experience. Many years ago, he said at the opening of a series of lectures on Job, I began my first careful reading of the book of Job and worked my way through 37 chapters to the end of Elihu's ministry, giving, as fast as I could, attention to every word, verse, and speech. 
Then with high hopes, I turned to read the speeches of Jehovah. And for the first and last time of my dealings with scripture, I suffered profound disappointment. There was nothing there that I had expected. I was looking for the profound philosophic interpretation of the ministries of suffering in this world. I found nothing in the speeches of the blessed God except details of creation, the habits of seven beasts about which I knew nothing. I closed the book and said, this is not for me, and I was right. It only worked out its philosophy years later, and I find now that as long as life lasts, I have, in these chapters, every bit of light and mental healing I shall ever need when I stand perplexed before the ministries of suffering. Then his technique, his wealth of matter, and his originality of expression were unusual, and even his announcement of his subject was worded in an arresting fashion. Galatians 5, The Factory in the Garden. Addresses on the four gospel, the tax collector and the king, the Levite and his lord, the physician and his priest, the fisherman and his god. Lectures on the Book of Numbers, the Camp of the Saints. Lectures on the four major prophets, the thrones and the live coal, the almond rod and the cauldron, the living cherubim and the wheels, by pulse and prayer. His opening sentence, too, was often designed to surprise a listener into attention. We'll turn to the book of Ezekiel, a pasture where the sheep of God are not often found grazing. Or, I am the owner of many umbrellas in many parts of the world. I am the possessor of none of them. This last provided a vivid interpretation to the subject of possessing your possessions in the epistle to the Ephesians. His way of speaking was completely natural and entirely free from excessive concern. He was an occasionally more imaginative than correct, as when carried away by his subject, he pictured Paul drawing out his watch and telling Silas that it was midnight and time for a song, but this never worried him. When one day told that the famous Dr. Jowett had had a sleepless night remembering how he had mixed his metaphors, Mr. Sandin replied kindly, He need not have worried. The Lord makes his metaphors. Didn't he say, Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Many parts of the Bible have been permanently lit up to his audience by the vividness of his imaginative telling. Surely no one could ever forget the New Testament teaching of the immature Christians after the following outburst. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, the church is a nursery, and Paul is feeding the babies. Verses 4 through 9a, the church suddenly changes into a garden. Paul has a spade in his planting, while Apollos runs around with a watering can. Paul says, I came to Corinth as a mother nurse, and I gave you the best milk I could get. And it was all very good when you were infants, and milk was a proper diet. But every day I looked at the chart and thought you should give up this milk, for I have any amount of strong meat nicely cooked and prepared. But your eye went to the bottle, and you hadn't a single idea beyond that bottle. I had the finest of the wheat and the best God has got for you, but there you were with your stagnated minds always twisting round that bottle. The cause of that is found in verse 3. You are still like that, having known Christ for several years. And the reason is you are jealous of one another and don't get on together and walk as if you were men, whereas you should walk as saints, growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that really one of the tragedies of the modern church? 
How many of us as Christians are content to go on feeding on the same scriptures, praying the same prayers, thinking about the same things, and God would have us go from strength to strength, from twilight to noonday sun. The little child who declines to grow up is the first illustration, like Peter Pan. We're going to end right here for part one, and then we'll begin for part two next time. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.